MSW Media. They might be giants have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich, and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey everybody, it is Wednesday, March 10th, and this is episode 8 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'm Andrew Torres. And I'm Allison Gill, AG. And uh, we have a we have a really exciting show for you today. We have a fantastic interview with one of my favorite people, Ashurangapa, who's uh, going to break down um, everything that's going on uh, in connection with investigations regarding January sixth, and um, you know whether uh, whether there are dots to be connected between insurrectionists and the Trump administration. Mm, yeah and a whole bunch else besides so i'm very very excited about that yeah yeah she's always a a treat to talk to in fact you and i were live in philadelphia with asha rangapa (laughs) when we did our uh muller she wrote show there in philly so that was a blast oh that was so much fun oh yeah we we went out had wine and fries after it was great it was a great time good time to be alive can't wait to get back out on the road um, all right, let's uh, let's dive in here. We're going to start uh, the show talking today. Um, it's a story that's on everyone's minds as we are recording this. this is the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin, who was charged with second degree murder and manslaughter in connection with the brutal killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And today we learn that uh, jury selection has been delayed as the parties debate over whether it's permissible for the state to add a separate charge of third degree murder. Andrew, uh, before we kind of break this all down and talk about what's going on, what's the difference between second and third degree murder in Minnesota? We had each covered this separately, <laughs> I know, on our shows, opening arguments and, and daily beans, but this was a while ago. So let's let's do a refresher. Yeah, and and these are atypical murder statutes. So first degree murder, premeditated murder. That's the same every state. Right. And proving premeditation is really, really hard. Right. That is lying in wait with a sniper rifle, for example. Right. Um, second degree murder is defined as following. Right. Whoever 
causes the death of a human being with intent to affect the death of that person or another, but without premeditation. Right. So in other words, you don't have to prove I planned this in advance. You do have to prove I intended to kill the person that I killed. Mm. Uh, contrast that with murder in the third degree, which in Minnesota, see if you can spot kind of the, the idiosyncrasies in this law. It says whoever without intent to affect the death of any person causes the death of another by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others put a pin in that, and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life is guilty of murder in the third degree. Mm. Right? So so <laughs> you see, like, the Venn diagram of these two, right? It, right? Like, it, it, it does not completely encompass the universe of conduct, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, depraved mind, first of all, is an interesting concept. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, dangerous, the act dangerous to others... <laughs> Okay, um, but but maybe not the yeah. And then of course, how does involuntary manslaughter work its way in if if third degree murder is causing the death by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others without you know without regard for human life, but you know is kind of an accident. You know, I mean, it's just it seems odd. It's just an odd wording. And I think is that what you kind of mean by these are unusual statutes? Yeah, and and I mean the key sort of word that's unusual in that third degree murder statute is the word others right and here's an example of like just where lawyers screw things up um under minnesota law for uh, as long as as courts have been analyzing that third degree murder statute until a month ago um, courts have interpreted that word others to mean that your eminently dangerous act must apply to more than one person right like well so i mean wasn't he originally charged with both second and third degree murder and i mean you know if this, you know, like you said, this kind of comes down mm -hmm. to proof. I mean, if you're a prosecutor in front of a jury, you don't want to be left with nothing but a manslaughter charge if they're convinced that Chauvin didn't intend to cause the death of George Floyd. And, you know, as you and I know from the Mueller investigation, intent, as you said a minute ago, is really hard to <laughs> prove. Uh, but he was charged with both of these. And then we had already talked about, I think actually I spoke with uh, with you about this, and I know I spoke with Ellie Honig about it, yeah. is that you can bring second degree murder charges and the jury may find that it didn't reach second degree and come back with a third degree charge. So I, it's just, it seems odd to me. Yeah, it, it, it was odd, right? And, and, what made this situation particularly odd is that the usual case in which you charge both second and third degree murder under Minnesota law is something like um, firing wildly with a semi-automatic weapon or throwing a Molotov cocktail at a group of folks. Right. OK. Um, and, and this this really is where kind of the, the procedural geekery comes in. Um Courts had uniformly interpreted that others, right, with, with the S, to mean that third-degree murder could only be sustained if that eminently dangerous act was capable of harming more than one person. And kneeling on one person's neck 
is dangerous exactly to one person. So, so what happened was Chauvin's lawyers moved to dismiss all the charges against him for lack of probable cause. Now, this is a totally routine thing that defense lawyers do and that the court just denies, right? Like that, that just happens. Um, but, but here the trial judge looked at it and said, yeah, based on the case law, um, I'm going to deny I'm going to to deny the motion with respect to everything else, but grant it with respect to the third degree murder charge because Chauvin, under the under the allegations, only injure only um, could potentially have uh, caused the death of one person and not others, plural. Okay, so because under the interpretation of Minnesota statute here. The court couldn't sustain a third-degree murder charge where violence was directed at a single person and not others. <laughs> right. And so that's where we were set until last month, right? February 1st, the Intermediate Appellate Court in Minnesota, in an entirely separate case called State versus Noor, upheld a third-degree murder conviction of a police officer in a shooting death of a single person in connection with a 9-11 call. And that court, the the Minnesota Court of Appeals, explicitly said in its holding that third-degree murder can be sustained even if it's directed at a single victim. <laughs> Isn't that what second degree is for, though? I mean, <laughs> so as you might expect, you know, three days after that Noor decision, right, the prosecution moved to reinstate the third degree murder charges against Chauvin. But for some reason, the district court uh, denied that mo- motion. Yeah, yeah, and 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 again, here's where you know the the civil procedures or criminal procedures sort of comes into play. The district court said. Nor, right, remember, you know, that was decided five weeks ago, was on appeal to the state Supreme Court. And in fact, the state Supreme Court granted certiorari on March 1st, right? And so the district court's position was, well, that's not really the law yet until the Minnesota state Supreme Court weighs in, right? Um, so it said, Nice try, but, uh, you know, not gonna, not gonna add the third degree murder charge until the state Supreme Court tells me to. Um, and then the prosecution got to appeal that ruling back up to the Minnesota Court of Appeals. And the Minnesota Court of Appeals was like, Hey, wait a minute. Like, what are we chopped liver? Like, I, I, I get that our case has been appealed to the state Supreme Court, but until they tell us we're wrong, like, we still think we're right. Like, our, our decision in Noor is good law unless and until the, the Supreme Court overrules us. So, so then they sent it back down to the trial court with the instruction to add the third degree murder charge back in. Okay, but now the defense is challenging the third degree murder charge. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's for the same argument, right? That, look, this is pending before the state Supreme Court, and it would be a mistake uh, for, this is this is Chauvin's argument, for this court to allow uh, the third degree murder charge to go forward until the state Supreme Court decides with finality. Um, so what happened today, uh, jury selection was supposed to begin and the defense came forward with this new argument. Um, they argued it today in open court. Um, and it was a request by Derek Chauvin to stay the proceedings. And at the end of the day, the judge denied it. Right. So 
As we're recording this, Monday night, Chauvin has filed a petition for an emergency stay back to our old friends, the Minnesota Court of Appeals, right? And we can do it. Andrew was wrong on this show, too, if we have to. But my prediction, (laughs) I feel very, very confident that the Court of Appeals, having twice said, we think Noor is good law, Mm. is going to deny that stay. And we're going to get jury selection tomorrow and move ahead with the case. With the third degree murder charge back in. With the third degree murder charge in. That's right. All right. Well, we'll keep following yeah i mean it yeah it, it, and it makes sense right i mean if they decided that others is ju- it can be one person twice yep you know he, but but i would say that this is probably also typical behavior of the defendant is to file an emergency stay sure uh with that same court of appeals but i i'm with you my beans are on them denying this as well and having the third degree murder charge stay so what are, what are the mechanics just so i understand how do you prosecute a second and third degree murder case do you just prosecute it at the second degree level and then it would allow the jury to come back with a third degree ruling yeah these are called lesser included offenses and so basically as uh as a prosecutor you are saying I think the evidence shows and I think we're going to put on sufficient evidence to demonstrate that Derek Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd. Incidentally, um, as a human being, I think that Derek Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd. Right. That is my mm-hmm. personal opinion. That is not, mm-hmm. you know, a legal analysis or the position of you know, clean up on aisle 45 institutionally <laughs> as a podcast. But but right. He kneeled. He, you know, he knelt on the guy's neck for nine minutes that. That uh, seems pretty clear to me. Um, but 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 look, as a prosecutor, you never know what a jury is going to think at the end of the day. Yeah, but you don't have to you don't have to file all those charges. Right. You can just say second degree murder and the jury might come back with third degree murder. You don't have to f- have it filed, do you? Or do you? Because then do you just file everything underneath it? Yeah. No, you you. You do have to file those additional charges, right? Okay. Like, so yeah, it is. And, and that's why you include the lesser included offenses. And so if the jury returns a guilty verdict on murder in the second degree, then he'll be sentenced uh, under the second degree murder statute, which, um, uh, contains a maximum uh, punishment of imprisonment for not more than 40 years. Um, third degree murder uh, is uh, carries a maximum penalty of imprisonment for not more than 25 years. If you don't have the third degree murder charge in there and the jury says, well, um, we, we're, we're hung, right? We're divided over whether it was intentional or not, right? Um, then you could be left with a situation where Chauvin, uh, uh, where the only charge upon which the the jury returns a sufficient factual basis to convict would be manslaughter, and I I think that would not be good for the city of Minneapolis if that were to happen. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, well, I mean. None of this makes sense. But, this, you know, the, what you've explained makes sense so far. And uh, we'll keep our eye on it for you. Um, this is, We'll put a pin in it. Is that what you say, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, everybody, stay with us, because right after this break, I've got some information about cock. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. <laughs> 
Hey everybody, it's AG, and this episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 is brought to you by BetterHelp. Life can be very stressful, and there's a lot of anxiety, it can be unpredictable, and when life throws a curveball at you, just remember, you don't have to face it alone. So if you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your happiest life, I recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp provides professional counseling to help you navigate life's challenges, and it's not self-help, it's not a crisis line, it's actual professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs, and then they'll match you with your own licensed professional therapist, who you can start communicating with in fewer than 24 hours. You know I've had my own challenges with anxiety and PTSD, and I know how important it is to seek help rather than to try to face it alone. The great thing is that BetterHelp services are available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account anytime from anywhere and send a message to your counselor, and you'll get timely, thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, too, so they make it free and easy to change your counselor if you want to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is always available. So visit their website and read some testimonials like BetterHelp user CA who says, Dr. Black is an excellent listener and doesn't give up on her clients. She works with her clients to keep up with solutions that they might not have thought up on their own. So visit BetterHelp.com slash cleanup. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and you can join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for cleanup on aisle 45 listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash cleanup. All right, everybody, welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. I'd like to take a trip down memory lane. Do you remember a long time ago during the Merlin investigation when charges were brought against Manafort for tax and business fraud, but also for bribery? He had a buddy who worked at a bank uh, that was supposed to just be for veterans, by the way. It was a lending bank. And uh, that guy's name was Stephen M. Koch. <laughs> he, he worked for that FDIC-regulated yeah. Federal Savings Bank. And he basically lent, uh, the, that bank lent Manafort a quarter of its balance sheet. <laughs> and, and, uh, and in exchange, Manafort says, hey, man, actually, Cock asked him, hey, man, can you make me the secretary of the army? And uh, apparently Manafort put that request in. And those charges were brought against Manafort, and we all remember the Manafort trials. And uh, however, when uh, Manafort was convicted, he was convicted on, I believe, 18 counts, or he was brought up on 18 counts, convicted on nine. One of the counts, I can't remember uh, how many he total, he eventually went down for. It was a lot. Uh, but one of the counts, multiple accounts, the, the jury was hung uh, on, on several of these accounts. And the bribery charges, one of the counts that the rural juror didn't think Manafort was guilty of. So uh, that was a, a, a hung conviction. Well, now, um, as of now, <laughs> believe it or not, this is coming back again. There is now a superseding indictment on Koch. And this is uh, for, let's see, what did they charge him with? Uh, count two, adding count two, conspiracy to commit financial institution bribery. Uh, citing a January 10th, 2017 interview uh, for Undersecretary of the Army at Presidential Transition Team's Manhattan offices. So that is now a superseding indictment uh, being added to Cox charges. And this is kind of reminiscent of a, of a few other things that we've seen with superseding indictments. 
um, that have come down the pike. But Manafort, uh, I kind of am wondering now where Manafort stands on this, because he was never convicted and never, um, he stood trial for this count, but he was never convicted of it, never served any time. Not sure then that that falls under the pardon, nor am I sure that it falls under double jeopardy provisions that uh, may exist in the Southern District of New York, which is, as you know, Andrew, why Manafort couldn't be brought up on business and f- tax charges uh, by at the state level, even though Cuomo signed a law saying, you know, the double jeopardy doesn't count in instances of um, when, when, you know, when they're pardoned. Uh, it w- he was signed that too late for it to count for the Manafort tax and business charges to be filed at the state level. But now I'm wondering if this bribery, financial bribery charge can't be brought by New York State, even though it occurred in Chicago. Um, but I think that the conversation, the bribery conversation took place in New York. Uh, so what are your thoughts? Uh, having seen the Manafort, the verbiage of the Manafort pardon, can Manafort be either brought up on federal or state charges for this bribery count now that he was, he never served time for or was convicted of? Yeah. And unfortunately, (laughs) um, I think that the, uh, that, that there are two things that have sort of combined here with respect to Manafort, um, that are probably going to place him, uh, beyond the reach of subsequent prosecution, right? So the first is, um, the, the text of the Manafort pardon, um, includes a full pardon for any crimes in, con- in connection with the Mueller report investigation. Um, so. So that erases federal crime. Right. Federal charges. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, the, 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 the problem is that in state court, um, we've had a ruling, uh, in February, uh, from the New York Court of Appeals, um, that, uh, that said that Cy Vance violated the state's double jeopardy law by attempting to charge Paul Manafort with mortgage fraud and other felonies. Um, and so, and they would be duplicative. And, and again, I thought that Vance had a decent argument here. Um, this, uh, uh, without kind of del- delving too deeply into the dual sovereigns doctrine. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I thought Vance, uh, took an aggressive position. Uh, I thought he had a decent argument. Um, and the problem is that uh, the Court of Appeals, New York State Supreme Court, uh, one page ruling did not opine on the merits, um, but just said um, we are going to leave in place an order uh, that says uh, it violates double jeopardy uh, to to charge Manafort state on a state level for crimes that he'd already been pardoned for at the federal level. Um, and I think any court looking at that order uh, and, you know, is, is going to apply it in the same way uh, to efforts to to resuscitate this. So um, it's not so much about the specific crimes he committed or the specific behaviors he that that led to the crimes, because in the in with with Cy Vance, he was trying to charge him with tax and mortgage yep. fraud. Right now, Manafort had not been tried and convicted for mortgage fraud in the federal. Uh, Correct. Trial, but they said because what it because he was pardoned for things stemming from the Mueller investigation, and that stemmed from the Mueller investigation. Exactly, right. it would be double jeopardy. That's exactly okay, right. so 
So then any crime, whether he's been charged, tried, or convicted or not, that was came out of the Mueller investigation, he it, it appears that Manafort will not be able to be charged at the state level for any crime yep. Manafort, uh, who, that, that came out of the right, Mueller investigation. Who has defrauded the United States out of nine figures of tax income, who is truly one of the most deplorable scumbags uh, in the country today. Yeah, he's he's, you know untouchable on anything in connection with the Mueller report now and the the Mueller investigation now look like I I, again this is beans here but I'd put all my beans that Manafort has committed additional crimes so you know I would uh, I I would be out there um, keeping a watchful eye to see you know what uh, what additional crimes there there are um, but but sadly, this is not going to be a vehicle to get Manafort back into court, um, which, uh, you know, and it leaves us with this situation that we saw, you know, in the, the, the Michael Flynn and Bijan Kian case where, you know, the principal instigator, um, you know, the, the person who arranged because let, let, let's, you know, not pass too lightly over what Stephen Koch did. Uh, Stephen Koch used his power at the bank to arrange for $16 million in high-risk loans to Paul Manafort. As you said, a third of the bank's balance sheet (laughs) absolutely should not have been uh, uh, lent. Uh, And the consideration was Manafort was going to, you know, buddy up to Trump and, uh, you know, get cock-appointed undersecretary of the Army. And as ridiculous as that sounds, like, that's not more ridiculous than the MyPillow guy planning your legal strategy. So, you know, who knows? No, not undersecretary. Full fucking secretary of the Army. He he, he wanted to be secretary of the Army. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, well, well here's, the, here's the way. Now, could they, could they take a crack at it in Chicago, uh, in Illinois State? Uh, I don't know what their uh, sovereignty laws are because, well, here's the thing. The default is is for the United States that it it is not double jeopardy to try someone uh, for state crimes that they if they've been convicted for federal crimes right many states though take the step to say that that does violate sovereignty and and like New York was one of them and that's why Cuomo signed that law saying except in the case of presidential pardons but that was too late for the Manafort stuff I don't know what the what the disposition is of uh, sovereignty the double jeopardy stuff over in in Illinois can they take a crack at it in Chicago where the bank is yeah and and so. I'm going to have to give you a, a, an I don't know on that. I will tell you that the the baseline is exactly as you've described it, right? Which is that uh, double jeopardy applies to being prosecuted for the same offense against the same sovereign twice, right? And so, in other words, it does not, uh, in the abstract, offend double jeopardy uh, to... Um, to have a state prosecution for a crime for which you have been pardoned at the federal level. Um, I will tell you, Illinois has a double jeopardy act, um, but whether that would cover Manafort in this precise situation, you know, I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to, to delve into that. Um, it's, it's worth looking at. Ah, okay. So on, on, in the same sovereign, hence the dual sovereignty. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. Illinois is also a sovereign, right? And so the, the, the way in which, Right. If if you are a good originalist like our Supreme Court, you know, like five ninths of our Supreme Court, um, you would say, right. How can the sovereign of the United States 
infringe on the sovereignty of the state of Illinois to prosecute offenses against it, right? Like, where does that power come from in the Constitution? And by the way, like, every founding father would line up behind, you know, you and me on that one and not, uh, you know, not the not Paul Manafort. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it remains to be seen how that would play out in the court. And, um, you know, I, I doubt that there is a lot of interest in wanting to go after Manafort in Chicago, but, but who knows? Um, you know, it just takes, it just takes one ambitious prosecutor somewhere. Yeah. My only concern is that if it can't be anything that was found during the Mueller investigation, I'm, tr- I'm hard pressed to think of what Mueller might have missed. Yeah. You know, I mean, he was pretty thorough. Yep. I mean, look, we still have, and it, it'd be interesting too, though, because we don't have. Sorry to interrupt, but we don't have those underlying uh, documents. We all we have is what's in the Mueller report. We don't have the grand jury materials. So, if some prosecutor uh, actually brought charges in New York State against something Manafort did that we never heard about, that only the grand jury ever heard about, somebody would have to uh, object and file a motion saying, "No, uh, Mueller looked into that. You just <laughs> didn't know about it." Yeah, and and it, you just hit on. The- the two points that, that I was going to make, which are, uh, number one, um, presumably right now, the Biden DOJ is looking at all of the ancillary Mueller report materials and determining what they can declassify and release to the public. Um, we, we're in, you know, we're entitled to the public fruits of that, right? Right. And, we we will get that and secondly right uh, as a subset right we have the uh investigations that were handed off that were truncated right like there's there are a lot of things in connection with the Mueller report where you know the the we had to guess under redactions and um and and <laughs> we did we spent a lot of time doing yeah, that <laughs> i know <laughs> and um and again you know the the biden administration now at least knows what's under those redactions yeah a, a lot of them were revealed actually thanks to buzzfeed yep. and their foia yep. requests and uh, good old judge reggie walton <sighs> Um, My hero. Who was like, mm, <laughs> you know, I don't know that these uh, redactions were made properly or appropriately. I'm going to have somebody review uh, these to see if they're actually for privacy purposes. And there were uh, tons of redactions that had to be revealed in that court case specifically, in that FOIA case from BuzzFeed. God bless Jason Leopold, you know. And and, and just, just one last note. Um, I, I pulled up the text of the Illinois Double Jeopardy Act, which says, um, whenever on the trial of an accused person for the violation of any criminal law of the state, it is shown that he has previously been tried and convicted or acquitted under the laws of the federal government, which former trial was based on the act of remission, which is being tried in this state. It is a sufficient defense. So ah, he wasn't convicted. Yeah, I it, it that there's an and it, not an or it, it, that's that's right. And And so, you know, could that have been expansively interpreted in the case law as including offenses for which you were pardoned? That's a possibility. Um, So, you know, it's why I've I've hedged my bets there a little bit. Um, But uh, but it doesn't seem on face that that would bar a subsequent prosecution. Yeah, there would just be a jurisdictional question as to whether or not you could charge Manafort in Chicago for that bribe. Exactly right. Because you can charge cock, because that's where his bank is. (laughs) Indeed. 
Uh, but he's being charged in Southern District. And in fact, Koch came back and argued, uh, hey, I think it'd be easier to do this in, in Chicago. And they're like, nah, nah, we're going to keep it in Southern District. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting, fascinating. Uh, we will, again, keep our ears open for all things Koch. <laughs> <laughs> show. I'm 12. Yeah, dude, uh, so many jokes. Uh, I remember when the reason we learned about the cock bribery scheme in the first place was because his wife filed for divorce. And as you know, divorce proceedings are public. Uh-huh. And uh, so it all came out uh, in, in the divorce. Um, so, but because before that, they were st- they weren't letting that information out. They were, I, we we had said they were being cock blocked. But um, <laughs> what a strange, delusional little man. But you know, I'm gonna be secretary of the army. Here's sixteen million dollars, a third, a quarter. It was between a quarter and a third of my bank's money. Uh, here you go. Here have it. Um, and what did he need it for? You know, when you think about when you think about it, because he was also being sued uh, previously by Oleg Deripaska yep. for fourteen million dollars for a telecommunications uh, scam gone wrong in Ukraine. So, good times. Good. <laughs> I don't know that I could say it any better than that. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, everybody, you want to stick around because we are going to talk with the incomparable. Often imitated, never duplicated Ashurangapa right after this <laughs> message. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. It's AG for Clean Up on All 45. Do you ever listen to Andrew and I and you start shouting at your radio or into the void because you want to ask us a question or tell us something, make a correction? Well, you can now. We go live on the stereo app where you can ask us questions directly. So join us for the Clean Up on Aisle 45 after party Q&A for uncensored opinions, exclusive content. You get to hear Andrew say swear words. And it's only available on the stereo app. I love stereo. I'm on the app talking all the time. You can follow me at Allison Gill and get notified every time I go live. We take a deep dive into a variety of topics and we interact directly with you. Download the Stereo app and follow us at Stereo.com slash Allison Gill. There's a link in the description of the show and then you can join us over on the Stereo app. Stereo app has thousands of live social conversations with a wide range of genres for every interest, including news, comedy, sports, and more. Andrew and I go live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern. And it, what's great about this is you can choose whether you want to be a co-host, participate as a guest, or just listen in on exclusive conversations. So we'll see you for the Cleanup on Aisle 45 after party every Tuesday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are fortunate and honored to be joined by the incredible former FBI agent and lawyer and and amazing person, Asha Rangappa. Asha, welcome. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, this is going to be an amazing conversation because last week before um, the FBI uh, member, you know, a, a representative from the FBI testified before the Joint Senate Committee about the insurrection. We had uh, Andrew McCabe on and, and he had some insights as to what might be asked. And, and that's basically how it went. And I was wondering what your top line thoughts were about the FBI response and the subsequent testimony uh, from the counterterrorism expert at the FBI. So I think... I personally was a little underwhelmed by the FBI testimony. I thought it was fine. I don't think that there was, you know, um, a smoking gun, that they did anything crazy wrong. But I think it highlighted that this was not elevated in the way that one might expect, given all of the red flags that we were seeing in public view. Mm. In, in that Sund testified that he didn't even get 
the information, right? Yeah. So we have first, you know, this Norfolk memo, which I think was, there's a little bit too much attention on that front. Um, but in any case, so that went out, it went out kind of, uh, through, you know, according to normal protocol. But the point is, is that even when it was disseminated to the Joint Terrorism Task Force or communicated in these other ways, whoever's eyeballs were going over this did not seem to think that it warranted, you know, a a code red DEFCON 5 kind of situation. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that's the question. Like, why not? Right. If this had been uh, an an unvetted and raw intelligence report that, you know, hundreds of Muslims were descending on D.C. and intended to create war and, you know, whatever the language was, I bet it would have been flagged and there would have been additional steps beyond the normal protocol that would have been taken. And so, you know, my co- my friend and colleague Frank Figluzzi wrote a great op-ed uh for NBC that basically called out the white elephant in the room, which is that, you know, it seems like there was some implicit bias going on here in terms of reviewing this. And I think that that does need to be addressed even if the FBI did everything by the book. Um Sometimes you need to go beyond the book. And the question is, why Why didn't they hear? Yeah. And especially when we heard from uh, General William Walker that he, it took seconds to get approval during the Black Lives Matter protests, not just in June, but in July and in August and in September, uh, just seconds to go up and down that chain of command. Uh, six, I think, approvals were needed to deploy the National Guard. And then there were other clues that they had the intelligence in that Sund requested an emergency authorization two days before the insurrection. And Irving and Stenger wouldn't put their names on that. And so it was declined by the board of governors at the Capitol Police or whatever that board uh, (laughs) is there for. And then also something that you tweeted that National Guard, uh, some of the folks were saying that the National Guard, the optics would be bad because they could potentially incite the mob into violence after the violence was already occurring. But as you said, doesn't that indicate that they thought they were a dangerous mob? Right. So let's let's tease out a couple of things. When we talk about the FBI um, and what they knew, we're looking at what was happening proactively, right? Like, what, what did they know ahead of time? How were they preparing for this? And so I think that that's phase, that's one area which needs to be examined. And I think that the FBI plays a big role there. Then there's the reactive component, which is the crazy has started. Okay, whatever you you did and didn't do beforehand, we now know the crazy has started. You're getting these uh, frantic calls for help. I don't know where optics comes into that, A of all. So we'll come back to the optics piece. But then B, the rationale that sending in reinforcement is going to incite these people. I Look, I don't even know where to begin to process that. Like, since when, you know, <laughs> I mean, do, do police not, you know, go and bust the drug deal because their presence might incite the drug dealers? You know, do we not go in and, I mean... No. 
Yes, people who are committing crimes often get angry when law enforcement shows up. It kind of goes with the territory, but you know what? We do it anyway. <laughs> Wait, have you been trained for that at all? I mean, is there any kind of, uh, you know, I mean, I, has Quantico picked up on that? But or? I think to your to the tweet that you're referring to, what I what I was getting to is that there is also in a sec, like a deeper implication there when they are saying, oh, this will incite them that they kind of understood the frame of mind that this crowd was in. It wasn't a shock. They knew that these people were angry people who might become even further emboldened if they see, uh, you know, people coming in to stop them. And so, again, that then raises the question of, well, if you knew that about these people, then why wasn't there more on the proactive side happening? If you already, you know, kind of understood this about the character of this group. Um, And then there's that optics piece, which to me tells me everything, which is, you know, and, and I explained this on CNN too. What I hear is we don't want these people to, we don't want to make it look like these people deserve the same response as the Black Lives Matter people. Mm. And why not? Because... It was very important that the the existential threat be Antifa, right? Antifa was, you know, hide your wife, hide your kids, you know, like they're so dangerous. But if you send in the same kind of response to the supporters of the president, then you are basically equating them. And I mean, and that's to me the optics that they were trying to avoid. I it, do you have another interpretation? Because that's that's my interpretation. No. And then also blaming BLM for their lack of response, I think, is extremely disingenuous. Uh, well, so there's there's two things happening here, right? I mean, we saw this in the hearings that they want to equate um, they want to equate January 6th with BLM. So then why aren't you also demanding that there was the same response? Like, in other words, if they are the same. And I don't think they were the same. But if you if they were this if they are the same, then why wasn't there the same response? Like why aren't you as outraged that there wasn't the same kind of, you know, law enforcement reaction and presence? Yeah. And and I was wondering, um, Andrew, because we were talking about uh the the news that has come out in the last twenty four hours uh about uh, a widening of the investigation into the communications. Andrew, what was that piece about? Yeah, and Asha, um, what what insight do you have into the ongoing inquiry as to uh, whether there were communications between uh, various uh, congressional staffers and those folks who were involved with the one six insurrection, which you know really seems to to cast um, some of the earlier responses into a sharper light. Yeah. Um, you know, it's starting to look a lot like collusion. That's kind of like always a tune that comes into my head, right? No collusion. No my collusion. Favorite, my favorite is my favorite is what Ash is like in the, at the FBI. That's what we call a clue. So I, you know, have have said for a while that the initial because at, at first there were a lot of questions of why are they only charging these people with such low level crimes? It's because that's all they have right now. Like obviously, trespassing is very obvious from a photo, but they need time to gather additional evidence for more things. And as they gather things like communications between people, then they can start to create uh, evidence that may support charges 
for, for example, conspiracy. Okay. Conspiracy is an agreement to commit a crime. Now I'm not saying that these people, whoever they're investigating Congress are necessarily guilty of that, but that's where that could go. If they were in communication, you a establish that, you know, there is, they, they know each other. There's, there's contact that's happening. And then in terms of what did they know, what were they doing in those communications? Um, and were they kind of facilitating, encouraging, or, or any, in any way, a part of it? Um, and especially if there's communications before, right. Leading up to, to this, (laughs) um, not just during. So, um, I think that some of these members of Congress should be worried. Um, you know, if if they have those communications records, it means that they are relevant to an investigation. I mean, the FBI cannot go on some kind of fishing expedition for them to subpoena these kind of communications records. They need an ongoing investigation and need to show that these records are relevant to it. So there is a connection somehow. Um, and... I don't know what else there is to to say about this. They were some of these members of Congress were incredibly concerned. It seemed like during the hearings uh, about what the FBI could get. Um, yeah, almost that whole like, if you're a cop, you have to tell me, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Josh Howley. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I mean, one of the things that that certainly caught uh, AG and and my attention were, were um, the incredibly light charges against one of the zip tie guys that 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 played out and as you you know we were thinking at the time um you know it was it was sort of difficult to figure out what kind of you know cooperative information he might have that would be of use in an investigation obviously entirely speculative here um uh, but but it but it does seem like the pieces are falling into place to um to to think that uh that the investigation is is widening in scope do you agree with that? Oh, yes, I, I do. And like you said, I can't speculate on any individual person, but when the FBI arrests someone, um, they are going to threaten them with everything they possibly can and what they, you know, we could get you for this and that and the other. You know, if you want to cooperate and give us any information, then we can see what we can do. And so it's in the interest of the person, depending on what they're looking at, um, to cough up information, um, perhaps, you know, voluntarily cough up things like emails and phone records or whatever they have. Um, you know, look, the alternative is maybe the FBI just doesn't have any more, right? And so if they, if all they can charge you with, that's, that's, that's a possibility. So I think it will really depend on, uh, the individual and what evidence they're able to gather. But yes, if, you know, I mean, zip tie guy, I don't, I mean, he came in there prepared for a mission. So, you know, he wasn't just like a rando who wandered into the Capitol because it looked cool and everybody else was doing it, in which case you could see like a low-level offense of some kind of misdemeanor or something like that. That guy looked like he had um, he had some preparation, you know, before it and knew what was going to go down that day. So, you know, my my gut would tell me that he might have more information to provide on um, you know, what, what went into the planning for that day. Yeah. Can, can, can we talk a little bit more on conspiracy? Because uh, it, in, in my experience, I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of struggling to bring 
the events of one six under you know sort of typical conspiracy analysis because you know you have thousands of participants right and so um i it, it i mean do, do you envision in a case like that 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 um that they would be bringing you know sort of a subset of folks among uh, whom you know it would be easier to show you know an agreement i mean obviously yeah look look you know we, you have an underlying cause yeah we yeah, can ahead, look sorry. at the the video that day and it's clear that i mean there were hundreds of people not all of these hundreds of people were like involved in the conspiracy okay um and i think director ray broke it down that there was a huge contingent of people who came they were at the rally and apparently didn't even like didn't make it over to the capitol okay did not commit a crime were there you know for first amendment purposes then there are a bunch of people who got who were a part of the mob mentality went in they may have trespassed there may be vandalism there may be you know but it could be a not planned but spur of the moment kind of thing but then he did specify that there were a group of people that you know, had a plan. And so, you know, I think it's important, like, it can be both true that there there was a conspiracy, but that not everybody that we saw that day was, was in on the conspiracy, right? Um, and so I think the most serious charges will be about those people. And we saw some uh, evidence. These are the people who came with the tactical gear, who had the earpieces, um, you know, maps. I mean, obviously, like I said, had a mission that day, which which seems to suggest that uh, there had been planning and, for, and a forethought involved. Yeah, and they had meetup points in different uh, in different states in Raleigh, et cetera. And then um, finally, uh, I I was really curious about the the mechanics of the investigatory process, specifically with regards to uh, the the telephone communications or or cell phone communications, uh, because. There were a lot of Republican senators uh, kvetching about FISA and illegal surveillance. (laughs) And it seemed to me they wanted to draw some sort of a parallel between, you know, getting geolocation information, subpoenaing phone records, you know, going through the actual process that that the FBI is known to go through versus uh, warrants and FISA and pen registers and all these other kinds of things that, that absolutely don't play a role at all. Yeah. So FISA stands for the Foreign <laughs> Intelligence Surveillance I'm sorry, what's the first word? It what's the first word? <laughs> the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Well, Ted Cruz is um, Canadian. I have no idea what they could possibly have to do with, uh, with 1-6 unless, you know, there were like you know, foreign intelligence agents that were involved, but, you know, that would not implicate, you know, Ted, Ted Cruz is, Ted Cruz is, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, so, you know, we, we know, listen, we know that they've created a Pavlovian response when they say FISA, right? Like everybody's head, you know, their basis head explodes. Um, it, it would have nothing to do with what happened on, on January 6th, at least from what I can surmise, right? Um, any kind of communications information that the FBI would obtain uh, related to 1-6 would be part of a criminal investigation um, that would have, I think, by definition, been opened after the crime occurred, what? right? Like, you know, this is a minority report. They were doing pre-crime. Like they, apparently they didn't do pre-crime. They didn't like stop anything. So Come on, Asha, CNN knew the night before. 
<laughs> oh, wait, that was Roger Stone. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so they would be using criminal, uh, te- you know, investigative techniques. They would be getting subpoenas. Um, you know, pen register is, is a list of, of phone numbers called to and from. So that could be something that they could get as well. But has nothing to do with FISA. Yeah. The criminal investigations are separate from national security investigations and FISA would have nothing to do with it on that side. And, and, and I think it's worth pointing out that the, that the, the standard uh, under which those subpoenas would be issued in, in connection with one six is a higher standard than, than the FISA standard. It's a high, thank you. Yes. It's a higher standard. You would have to show that they are relevant to an ongoing investigation. And I think, um, you know, Alice and I were talking before that it seems like there is both um, an attempt to trigger the Pavlovian response to the word FISA, but also to somehow muddy the waters and suggest that if the FBI gets information, that they were, you know, surveilling the people at the rally beforehand. <laughs> they weren't, I assure you, right? I mean, like I said, unless they they would need, it, it, there would have to be a completely different aspect to what was going on that we don't know about. Like I said, like some foreign intelligence presence or something like that for uh, some kind of ongoing surveillance to be going on. Even then it would be like such a minefield internally in terms of regulations and stuff that I couldn't even imagine. So, um, but I think that's what they're trying to do is blur this line and to kind of preemptively discredit. I mean, don't you think that's kind of what I was hearing? hundred uh, percent. What they're, they're, they're going for the FBI deep state. A, a way to yeah. preemptively discredit what would be an ordinary yeah. criminal investigation. Well, Asha, I appreciate you um, coming on today. I hope we have you back soon. Thank you so much. And tell everyone where they can find you and your work because you're one of the best follows on Twitter. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Asha Rangappa underscore. Um, you can also check out my website that has some of my clips and recent op-eds, www.asharangappa.com. Well, awesome. It's been wonderful to see you again. Uh, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back right after this. Hey everyone, it's AG for Clean Up on Out 45. It's March already, and we're already more than a week into it. That's so great. Spring has sprung. It's time for spring cleaning and getting the house in order. You can get a great head start by revisiting your home and auto insurance policies by using Policy Genius. Policy Genius can help you kill two birds with one stone, or as my mom says, set two birds free with one key. You can compare home and auto insurance rates, and you can save up to $1,055 a year by reshopping. That's money you can put towards things that you really care about. And here's how it works first, you go to policygenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Then Policy Genius will take it from there. They do all the heavy lifting. They'll compare rates for over 30 top insurers from progressive to nationwide, and they will find you the lowest rates. The Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings, including bundling your home and auto policies, for example. And if Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. It is free to do all this. You might as well check. It is no wonder with that level of service, Policy Genius has earned a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews at Trustpilot and Google. So if you're worried that this year is flying by, and you've barely gotten anything done, take a deep breath. Policy Genius will help make the most of this short month in minutes. Just reshop your home and auto insurance, and you could save up to $1,055. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Everybody, welcome back. It is time for the favorite segment by, I think, Andrew, this is yours. It's mine. And many listeners absolutely love this segment, the goodbye to you segment. Uh-huh. This is better to say goodbye to you. 
And now, here we go. Goodbye to you. We have some fun ones today on Friday. President Biden uh, fired Sharon Gustafson. Uh, clearly, some sort of weird evil spawn of GSA Emily, <laughs> who was appointed by former President Trump as the general counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Very important uh, job, by yeah. the way. She was asked to resign, but respectfully declined the, the request, claiming that there are those who oppose my advocacy on behalf of employees who experience religious discrimination and on behalf of constitutional and statutory protections for religious entities. Yeah, this is a person who looks at the entirety of discrimination in employment in the United States of America and comes away with won't someone please think of the Christians? Yeah, it will not. The poor white businessman yeah. Christians. Come it on. It will not surprise you to learn that she is, of course, a member of the Federalist Society. <gasps> no. Yeah. Was the keynote speaker for the National Faith at Work Conference. And that is, and I swear I am not making any of this up, quote, a national convening point for workplace chaplains. End of quote. God. That reminds me of, remember Freedom Fest? Freedom <laughs> Fest! Pew, pew, pew! Uh, is that Freedom Rock, man? <laughs> mm-hmm. Turn, Turn it up, up man! man. Uh, oh, gosh. Now, uh, why this matters to me is she used to she's used to the belief that religion belongs in the workplace as a club against LGBTQ plus folks while at the EEOC. Her signature accomplishment, Ugh. if you want to call it that, was that the EEOC sued Kroger, the grocery store company, after employees complained that wearing aprons that had a rainbow-colored heart on them violated their religious belief, as the employees believed the emblem endorsed LGBTQ plus values. Yeah, and, and here is the double standard. For Gustafsson, it's perfectly okay for Hobby Lobby to get an exemption to all the laws ever because the corporation somehow has Christian beliefs. But for Kroger, whose website has a separate page for Kroger Pride, right, that says that they are a company that, quote, embraces diversity and inclusion as core values. They tout their perfect score on the human right campaign's uh, equality index, right? Like, it, 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 in all aspects, if Hobby Lobby has the right to hold conservative evangelical beliefs as an institution, I don't see how you can then simultaneously say it's wrong for Kroger to hold liberal inclusive beliefs, right? Um, but they deliberately sued. I mean, the EEOC didn't just send like a letter and say they, they took Kroger to court on behalf of the employees who said wearing a heart with a rainbow on it violates my religious rights. Mm, but having a stage shaped like a Nazi symbol. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> we won't go there. <laughs> anyway, you know, hey, that's awful. But good news. Oh, She's gone. Good. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. And AG... You're really, really going to love this one. Um, guess who has white nationalist asshole Stephen Miller's old office at the White House? Uh, please tell me it's a woman oh, of color. Please oh, tell me it's not just any woman of color. It is frequent right wing punching bag Susan Rice. Yes. The former National Security Advisor <laughs> under Obama, new <laughs> Biden Director of White House Domestic Policy Council. One of the architects <laughs> of the Russia oh, hoax, God. right? So <laughs> I, I, I love the Schadenfreude there, but but you're you're really gonna love this one. Um, she has taken to uh, as as 
being reported by the New York Times, burning sage in the office, mm. um, which uh, is associated with uh, rituals by indigenous peoples in ceremonies, quote, meant to cleanse spaces from negativity and to promote healing. So good for her. Yeah. 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 Ugh. My my, my dad, uh, his, for, for most of his adult life, worked for McCormick's, the spice company. Uh, um, yeah. He was in there. IT department and um and so when he retired uh they give you a little custom spice jar and my dad's custom spice jar was sage so um I I just I love that love the healing um Miss Rice has also hung a painting made by a Haitian artist that depicts uh, a group of black individuals in colorful clothing walking down the street so you know well, I love it. Bye-bye, Stephen Miller. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah. Can't have enough. Goodbye to you. Mm. I wonder if there was, like, spray-on hair stuck to the carpet, you know. Oh, um, God. <laughs> just in, in a stencil outline in the shape of Stephen Miller. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's such great poetic justice that susan rice now occupies his office and it it kind of reminds me of when uh and they did this quickly too when biden walked into the white house with dr jill biden for the Mm -hmm. first time and all of the pictures had changed uh the andrew jackson came down and ben franklin went up uh like just all of everything had been probably deep cleaned and sanitized (laughs) and then uh the they came in and and just really quick um took down all of the horrible the de- decorative choices uh i guess you could call uh, that the, the, the former guy made and uh and that night he did a he did a little uh, speech from the resolute desk which uh, was uh sans a diet coke button. i was gonna mention the diet coke button <laughs> sorry i took that away from you that's the one thing that like because I, I used to have, you know, back when I worked for the big firm and, and before I, you know, <clears throat> decided to go it out on my own, I had this, um, you know, nice kind of man cave basement and I had a, a wet bar and, and I had a soda gun. And, and so I would have Diet Coke on tap uh, and beer on tap, of course, in my basement. So um, I, I had it was not a Diet Coke button, a little, you know, like Harvey Villachez did not come out with a silver tray with a Diet Coke on it. Uh, but I could get I could get Fountain Diet Coke whenever I wanted. And it is uh, I do not miss the big firm life, but I, I do miss my Diet Coke dispenser. So nice fantasy island uh callback there with the harvey village we've, we've done a couple this this show so <laughs> now uh merrick garland vote should be happening today wednesday as this episode airs what do you suspect the timeline is because i'm waiting for the wave of u.s attorneys i know we've seen uh, trickles here and there of them resigning leaving their offices they were supposed to be out by last tuesday uh i maybe we just haven't heard about it but what do you suppose the timeline is for putting new u.s attorneys uh in 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 those positions um, i expect i expect that uh under merrick garland that the, the doj will move quickly we know um that there's a that there's a pretty deep bench we know that um 
uh, that Biden has been really proactive about talking to local folks to find, you know, the kind of talent to replace uh, the, the folks that they're rooting out. And, and, and I agree with you, right? Like there is, there's some level of, uh, continuity and transition that you need, even as you're phasing out, you know, 50 plus former Trumpers. And we have not seen, right? Like Gustafsson wrote a defiant letter, right? Said, I am not, definitely not resigning. Um, we have not seen kind of similar defiant letters from the rest of the u.s attorneys so uh i i suspect we're going to see those waves coming um you know relatively quickly and we'll cover it here on goodbye to you i think they'll all be seated by end of april latest um i have not heard the mums the word on anyone throwing their hats in yeah particularly for the biggins like dc southern district I'm I'm Eastern District. I'm very Eastern District of Virginia. Very interested to to know who who's even applied, and it's it's incredible that we haven't heard anything about that yet, unless they aren't taking applications yet. But that can't be the case. Yeah, no, I it, it I agree with you on both parts of that, and I'm I would be very curious. No one's asked me, so well, you know that we can we can rule me out. <laughs> But uh, but other than that, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't uh, I can't. But uh, maybe I can get Sidney Powell's old job. <laughs> that, you, I, it, not that I, I want it. You, uh, you yeah, we could spot Sidney Powell 150 questions on the bar exam, and I would still take your score over hers. So thank you. Well, um, this has been uh, a great show. Thanks again to oh, Asha Rangappa for joining us, explaining that stuff to us. Um, w- and the goodbye to you segment is just it's so it's so wonderful this susan rice story i'm just going to be walking around my house smiling for the rest of the day maybe i'll burn some sage in honor yeah uh, of stephen miller being gone even though he wasn't in my home (laughs) (laughs) but anyway andrew thanks so much this has been great yeah thank you always it's a pleasure all right everybody we will see you next week on cleanup on aisle 45 Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence was designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazzell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss our cleanup on Aisle 45 After Party on the Stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 Eastern, and we want to hear from you. Our first stereo show went a little bit like this. Quick question. I wonder if you could take a deeper dive into Trump Chicago. What exactly is going on there? Oh, Did I know. The lender just let him off the hook for $100 million? There's so much out there. I'm just a little confused of exactly what the risk is here for him. Thanks a lot. Oh. Bye. I think I know. I'm going to try this, and then, Andrew, you tell me if I'm right. Okay. Okay, so uh, basically, this uh, institution lent Donald about $100 million uh, to... $130 million to, for Trump Tower Chicago. And in the in the middle of the financial housing crisis, when real estate sucked butts, uh, they made a deal saying, hey, I'll give you $45 million if you, you know, forgive $100 million of the debt. Because with, you know, all of the interest accrual and everything it was about up to 150 million dollars so the lender was like 45 million is better than zero 
uh, even though Trump claims to have billions of dollars. Uh, $45 million is better than zero. Cool. We'll go ahead and forgive, not cancel, forgive $100 million of this debt. Now, the IRS requires you to take a forgiven debt as income and pay appropriate taxes on it. If you have it now, the, the New York Times, when they did their expose tax story on Donald Trump, it showed that uh, Donald put that down as a canceled debt, which allows you to take the hit on income spread over uh, multiple years. And so what the uh, Manhattan DA is looking at in this particular instance is, I mean, any financial institution can forgive a debt if they feel like it, right? They, they cut a deal with Trump. I don't know that he ever paid that $45 million, but uh, in any case, the debt was forgiven. And so what they're looking at specifically is whether or not uh, Trump legally uh, called it income or, you know, called it a, a, a forgiven debt and paid income taxes on it. And so that's what they're looking into in that particular little thing. I think the Seven Springs Estate stuff is going to be the the albatross, but that that's what that particular uh, thing that they're looking at is. That is 100% correct. I have literally nothing to add to that. Woohoo! Stereo is the app for live social conversations, and we want to talk directly with you, the listeners. You can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, comedy, anything, anything you want. You can sing us a song if you feel like it. You can share your experiences and opinions. We want to hear everything. So download now. Join us live this week, Tuesday at 5 Pacific, 8 Eastern. A link to our show is in the description. So join us over on the Stereo app. Season four of How We Win is here. For the past four years, we've been making history in critical elections all over the country. And last year, we made history again by expanding our majority in the Senate, beating election-denying Republicans in crucial state house races, and fighting back a non-existent red wave. But the MAGA Republicans who plotted and pardoned the attempted overthrow of our government now control the House, thanks to gerrymandered maps and repressive anti-voter laws. And the chaotic spectacle we've already seen shows us just how far they will go to seize power, dismantle our government, and take away our freedoms. So the official podcast of The Persistence is back with season four. There's so much more important work ahead of us to fight for equity, justice, and our very democracy itself. We'll take you behind the lines and inside the rooms where it happens with strategy and inspiration from progressive changemakers all over the country. And we'll dig deep into the weekly news that matters most and what you can do about it with messaging and communications expert, co-founder of Way to Win, and our new co-host, Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. So join Steve and I every Wednesday for your weekly dose of inspiration, action, and hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And And this this is is How We Win. Win. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. 
Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.